It's not 2004 anymore. There are new ways of distributing software. There are new ways of selling software. And perhaps some of those ways of selling software will not include subscriptions. And I think that is a really fascinating area. I think it's something where a lot of SaaS companies are actually terribly vulnerable if a competitor enters the space that is not built on a recurring business model like SaaS is. And I think that's going to be one of the frontiers in the next decade. Welcome, David. It's great to have you on the show. How are things? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries at all. Looking forward to speaking to you. So anyone that's listened to Opto sessions before will know that we we kick off with an intro question that won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give uh, a little teaser as to the content that we hope to cover further down the interview. And that and that question this time around is, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, give us one of the most important traits or characteristics that you look for in a business. Oh, that's a good one. Well, I think um, I like to look at businesses in terms of who runs them. And if you're looking at who runs them, you got to look at Mm -hmm. what drives them. And at least as I've found, the kind of people who run businesses that I personally invested in, my own model, uh, our circles, there has to be some intrinsic connection to what you're working on. Um, There are brilliant mercenaries out there who can make things happen and they don't care one hoot which Mm -hmm. way or another uh, what domain it is. But um, I found that the kind of founders that are willing to go the long distance, not just the three years or the five years, but the 10 or the 20, have to have some intrinsic connection to the domain, some intrinsic motivation for that domain that's going to drive why they're so good at it, why they're better than the mercenaries that inevitably will show up if they have any type of success. Yeah, great. And I want to get onto a few of those points further down the line. But before we do, I think let's circle back and cover some of your background just to introduce you to the listeners, anyone that hasn't heard of you and isn't familiar with your work. Um, I started, like I guess, where most people start with your Wikipedia page, which describes you as a Danish programmer and racing driver, two things that aren't typically found together. I think it's safe to say. So perhaps I can start by asking you to reflect, I suppose, on the synergies between those two pursuits. Like, how do those two things come together? And what do you think that says about you as a person? Yes, it's interesting. I got into race car driving quite late in life. I didn't get my driver's license until I was 25, and I did not sit in a racing car until I was 27. But after I had sat in that racing car at 27, I just become became absolutely obsessed with figuring the system out. And in that regard, it is quite equal to programming in that um, it's more or less a closed system. You have a racetrack that might go two minutes and you get a verdict every two minutes as to whether you improve the system or not, whether the inputs that you delivered as a driver or the tire choice that you made or the engineering or the preparation, that all that was correct. And I think programming has a lot of the similar characteristics if you look at complicated systems and you're trying to figure out why a bug is happening, you're trying to make the system go faster, you're trying to make it more appealing. It is a bit of a a closed loop and it's certainly systems thinking and is an optimization effort to get the best out of the materials that you have or figure out which of those materials that you have that simply aren't good enough that you need to replace them. And I think this is why when I look at programming, I don't just look at like, let's make some code. I also look at what team is making that code? What companies make that code? What are the other structures around that we could improve if we're not making good enough code? But um, race car driving, of course, also just has this phenomenal ability to transcend you into the magic place of flow. 
And it's that moment where you forget everything else and you're focused exactly on the task. And very often you'll forget how long has passed. Like I'll be in a racing car for three hours and it'll feel like it was 30 minutes. The best of programming has the same. I think the best of any pursuit, I get the same feeling with writing occasionally too when I'm really in it, that you just, you lose everything else. You don't think about, oh, what am I going to do for dinner tonight? Or we have all this stuff. I have a meeting next week. I have to prepare, blah, blah, blah. No, you are simply present. And that feeling is intoxicating. And I think this is where the best work for me has been done in my career as a programmer, as a business person, as a writer, and certainly as a race car driver, just being 100% present in the moment, getting the best and preferably a little bit more out of your abilities. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And to follow on from that then, I suppose, I think, as you say, you you, uh, gained your driver's license at 25. You go on to win Le Mans or at least a stage in Le Mans. You can give me the detail of that at 34. And that race is also described, I think, on their website as the Grand Prix of Endurance and Efficiency. And I thought that might be one, I guess, correlation between those two pursuits. Is Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, what I really like about endurance racing is that unlike sprints, it's not just a single person performance. Sprint racing, there's a single driver, it's all on that driver. In endurance racing, which is the type of racing I do, we have teams of three. So you really need to make all the pieces work together. And it's never going to be even. I show up as a gentleman driver, as it's called, in the cars that I drive. And I drive next to professional drivers who, in most cases, have been driving go-karts since they were six or seven years old and have dedicated their entire life to this pursuit. And I have to sort of come up to that challenge. I have to show up with the very best that I can and close the gap between me and these uh, professional drivers. And I just, I like that aspect of it, that it's a team sport and it is not reliant on a single dazzling lap. When we do the 24 hours of Le Mans, we drive, I think, something like 400 laps, 400 laps of uh, just under four minutes. It's absolutely about getting all the pieces together, not just one dazzling spike of brilliance, although those are fun to watch and they'll go into the highlight reels. The people who win Le Mans are the types of people who prepare the entire package. And that doesn't start the day before, the week before, the month before, that starts the year before. And I found a lot of similarities to great systems that have been running for a long time. I mean, I've been doing programming on Basecamp, for example, our project management tool for about 20 years. And that's the same duration I've been working on this programming toolkit I developed called Ruby on Rails that's been used by Shopify and Twitter and a bunch of other companies. And I'm still on it. I'm still in that endurance race. 20 years on is actually a fair amount of time in technology to have stuck with something. And I think this is one of the aspects of the technology business that I sometimes don't like so much. I love the excitement of it, but I don't love so much that people seem to have um, sort of a bit of a harebrain to to focus on something, dedicate to something and make it better. There's a lot of ideas that simply won't work if you give them a year, but we'd be brilliant if you give them 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's probably the perfect segue then to talk about some of those uh, tools and products that you've worked on. Firstly, Ruby on Rails then, and let's cover half that other half of the equation, I suppose. We talked about the racing. Let's talk about the programming. Uh, So Ruby on Rails, uh, Ruby... At the time, at least I read about it, it was described as a relatively obscure programming language. You can tell me whether that's fair or not. But you use that to to, uh, develop this custom web framework, Ruby on Rails, back in 2004. So before we move on, perhaps you can briefly explain what Ruby on Rails is to those that are unfamiliar with it. Just give us the, the elevator pitch. 
Sure. So Ruby is a programming language out of Japan. It was first released in 1995. And then, as you say, went on to have quite a few years in complete obscurity in the West. There is a significant language barrier between the Japanese and the Western programming circles. So it didn't really cross over until the early 2000s. And that crossover was very slight. Well, I picked it up in 2003, found it to be the absolute most brilliant programming language I'd ever seen in my life. It just ignited my brain, and I credit the Ruby programming language for wanting to become a full-time programmer. So when I found that programming language, it had lived in obscurity in the West. It had not been used a whole lot for creating web applications, and I thought, you know what? I can change that. So the on-Rails part is my contribution to Ruby on Rails, and it is a toolkit that takes the general-purpose Ruby programming language that you can use for anything and make it particularly good for creating web applications, talking to databases, generating HTML, all the technologies that you need to invoke in order to produce compelling web applications. That's the on-rails part. That's the part that I've dedicated the past 20 years to building. Yeah, fantastic. And you've, you've touched on, I suppose, why you chose Ruby over other programming languages, but perhaps we can get into a bit of detail here. What, why was it so appealing to you? Was it more flexible than other languages? Talk us through that decision. Sure. So when I first picked up Ruby, I also picked up um, the ethos of the programming language. And it was very clear to see that those two things were intrinsically connected. Most programming language that I had been exposed to at the time had very objective focuses. Like, whoa, we're going to make it the fastest programming language or the most memory efficient or, or the safest or any of these other things. Ruby was very different. Ruby's number one mission was to be a programming language to create happy programmers. And I thought, like, that is a really curious mission statement to have for something so scientific, if you will, as a programming language. But it was evident throughout the design of the programming language that Ruby would do things to make it a joy to use that were counter to what a machine would prefer to interpret, what a machine could make fast, what a machine could make memory efficient. Ruby simply was endowed with a sense of poetry that I had never seen in any programming language before, which was one of the reasons I picked up on Ruby in the first place, because it was being used by other programmers to explain general programming principles and concepts to folks who didn't even know Ruby. It is simply so readable a language. It's so close to English in its presentation, and it allows for just such a variety of expressions some would say needlessly so, but you could also say the English language is needlessly complicated. We have 50 different words to describe shades of ambition. And Ruby is much the same, allowing you just that expressiveness of finding just the right term, just the right balance of the expressions to create a compelling piece of code. And not just a compelling piece of code that's easy to write, but that's a pleasure to read. And I came to programming not as a software engineer, but as a software writer. That I love the writing aspect of it. I love finding just the right words for the objects and the classes that we work with. So Ruby just appealed to me immensely so. It is also uniquely flexible. And when I say flexible, I don't mean you can do a lot of things. You can write any program with any programming language. Um, but 
there is a uh, difference in how easy it is to do. A lot of programming languages are designed to protect the programmer from themselves, which basically means, in some cases, giving you a little rubber cell so that you won't hurt yourself. And maybe that's good for sort of the big uh, blob of uh, unwashed masses, as I'm imagining these language designers would think of other programmers, like, oh, we got to give them something not too sharp. They might cut themselves. Let's put them in this rubber cells where they they won't hang themselves, they won't hurt themselves. And Ruby's just very different. It goes, do you know what? To finely cut a tomato, here's a very sharp knife. Yes, you could cut off your fingers, but just like, don't do that. And then enjoy the splendor of cutting, um, I was about to say vegetable, is it a fruit? I think it is a fruit. Cut the fruit with a very sharp knife. And that is just a, a unique pleasure, I'd say. And it's not the only programming language that is like that, but it is the only programming for me that marries all these things together, the poetry, the flexibility, the trust in the programmer to become the best programmer they possibly could and giving them all the tools to do so, even if those tools could be dangerous in um, other people's hands. Got it. Okay. So it's sort of in parts and a responsibility or an autonomy on the, the, the programmer as opposed to trying to keep those guardrails on and kind of dictating to the, the individual as to how they should operate, I guess. And I guess with that in mind, then, is a language that you use to obviously create this open source web framework, Ruby on Rails. And I think, as I said earlier, 2004, it was released. So we're nearly 20 years on since that point. Why do you think the framework has recorded such an impressive um, longevity, I suppose? I think one of the reasons is that I extracted this framework from a real application that I was programming in anger, as I like to say. This was something real. This was not an academic exercise. I did not um, just dream up, oh, what would it be nice to have in a programming language uh, toolkit? What is it going to be nice to have for web applications? No, this is what I actually needed to build something, not just real, but something good and something successful. And I think there are um, aspects of the programming community that is far more academically focused. I am very market focused. I'm going to work on things that I enjoy in the pursuit of commercial activities. So I build a company on top of the products we've made with Ruby on Rails, with Basecamp, the project management tool, with Hey, uh, Hey.com, our email service. And so has a lot of these other adopters, like the big uh, adopters of Ruby on Rails that continue to use it to this day, like Shopify or like GitHub. They're using it for very practical purposes, very market-oriented purposes. And I think having that drive that this is both about having something that's technically good, it's about having something that's poetic and inspiring, and it's about having something that's practical and pragmatic. This isn't an ivory tower. This is a toolkit made for people who actually want to build businesses. Literally, the tagline on rubyonrails.org right now is from Hello World, which is the first program that any programmer will write in a new language. They'll get the screen to say Hello World, from Hello World to IPO. So I think that just encapsulates the entrepreneurship that we've been able to attract in the Ruby on Rails community because of the kind of people who were into the art, the science, and the business of making these things happen together. And you mentioned your own yeah, practical absolutely. example of this, which, which is, of course, Basecamp. Um, and that's one of the products I want to discuss today. Perhaps, again, before we move on, let's use this juncture to offer it up to you to give us the elevator pitch for this product. So Basecamp is 
one place online where you have all the loose ends tied up for a project. When you need to work with other people, very often it starts with an email. You're just sending one email, hey, we should work on this together, and then suddenly you realize we should involve uh, the second person or the third person. Now they don't have access to the first email, and they don't actually have access to the latest files. And what did we have? What did we decide that we're going to do again? Where we keeping track of the work? Basecamp is that place to keep track of the work, um, to invite people to collaborate together on um, the definition of the project, the pitch of the project, the progress of the project, the to-do items, the files, the everything. You could describe it, as some has done, as a combination of, uh, of Slack, Google Docs, uh, Dropbox, and Asana. Taking all those pieces, giving you one application that you can use to bring wonderful projects to their completion. Yeah, fantastic. And I listened to your interview with uh, Tim Ferriss, who described uh, Basecamp. I know, actually, I think it was you within that interview. You described Basecamp as a DJ remix of the best tools, which is obviously something you've spoken to a little bit there. But perhaps you can elaborate on that analogy. Yes. So one, well, not one, the most important part of Basecamp when we hear from customers is that it's really easy to use. They can get other people to use it with them. And not just on one little aspect of the project. This sometimes happens. Oh, I've gotten someone to use Trello with me or or we use Slack. And then you're missing the other pieces. And by the time you have a, a full constellation of applications that you actually need to complete full projects, people find it awfully complicated. Data is spread out all over the place because none of these solutions offer everything that you need in one place. Basecamp does. But what Basecamp does as a sort of a trade-off is it's not necessarily the best-in-class chat because you don't need the best-in-class best chat. You need the best-in-class everything to be able to complete a project. And you need a simplicity of software to be able to do that because the hardest part about technology uh, adoption in any corporation is to get other people to use it and to use it consistently. And I think that's the nut we've really cracked with Basecamp is to make a piece of software that someone can adopt without training, without seminars, without manuals, and then they can do the whole thing. And I think that is, um, we have a bit more competition these days, but we also have a 20-year hit start. We've been in this business for so long, since 2004, as you say, since before SaaS was even a term, since before um, Stripe made it easy to uh, um, collect from credit cards, we actually had to convince a bank to get a merchant account. Like All of that history has just given a tremendous amount of experience to build these kinds of systems and make them good. And not only have we made the software that's um, good for these purposes, we've also shared everything that we've learned in the entire journey of that. We've written some books about that, including our 2010 New York Times bestseller, Rework, which is all about how to run a business in a better way. And this goes to the initial question you asked me about. What do you look for in a founder? Well, if I'm looking for someone to make me a project management tool, I damn well better want someone who's shipped some successful projects, who've actually worked with the domain of project management for a long time, who knows what works and what doesn't work. We're not just acting on um, the request of the users. We're acting on behalf of our users. We have users who come to us all the time saying, oh, I wish it did this or I wish it did that. And what we try to listen for is their problems, not their solutions. We are here to be the software makers, the software creators, to create something good that works on behalf of a lot of people. But that whole encompassing nature of Basecamp, that it is literally everything in a box for one low fee, um, I think is a key part of its success 20 years on. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it was interesting to me. I don't know whether I'm getting sort of too meta with this, but there seemed to be a theme that existed or a parallel that existed between Ruby, the language that you created, or Ruby and Rails, the framework that you used to create this Basecamp product. The, the parallel, I guess, or the link seemed to be that they were both kind of a jack of all trades. They were good at doing a lot of different things, but perhaps not the master in any one of them. And as you said, I think earlier, they don't need to be. Would that be a fair link to kind of pull between the two or a fair parallel to make? Absolutely. I am always interested in the whole system. If you show me, oh, here's one little part of it and the part is really good, I go like, okay, that's nice. But what's the rest of the system that it fits into? It's only complete systems that deliver results. You can take individual parts and sometimes you can take great parts and you say, I have five great parts and you try to put them together and you get actually a crappy system. It happens all the time. It happens very often when people try to knit together a mosaic of applications to to solve project management inside of the organizations, for example. And I always try to zoom out. I want to see the whole system. I want to see the box that's producing the results. Don't show me just some little corner. Don't show me just the tail of the elephant. Give me the whole elephant and I'll tell you whether the room is the right size and the right temperature and the right lighting and all of those aspects of it. And I find that in my own life as well. This idea of a, a renaissance approach to things where you are not just like a narrow specialist in one domain. It's wonderful for our society that we have those narrow specialists, but if you want someone to push something major forward, you need someone who can zoom out, who can look at the bigger picture, who is versed in multiple areas at the same time. I think this is one of the reasons why Jason and I have worked so well together for so many years. I've worked with Jason Fried, my business partner at 37 Signals since 2001. And in part, it's because we both care about marketing. We both care about business. We both care about the writing and the presentation of our company. We then have our own specialties, me in programming, him in design, but we have so much overlap that both of us have an understanding of the entire thing. And I think that kind of understanding is regrettably a bit rare these days. There's more opportunities, more lure to become a specialist. And I try to push back against that in every single way that I can, both with entrepreneurs, but also with programmers, that a programmer should know the whole enchilada. Um, we call that full stack in web development these days, that you should both know how to work on the front end, work with HTML and CSS and those technologies that make things render on the screen. And you also need to know or should know what it takes to write to a database, what makes a good performant application. So I'm in the business of training Renaissance people, creating Renaissance tools and selling Renaissance products. Yeah, really interesting. So your point about um, you obviously co-founded 37 Signals with Jason Fried, as you mentioned, that's the company that owns Basecamp and Hey, another product that we haven't gone into as of yet. Talk to me about where that name 37 Signals comes from. Does that speak to a, a kind of mantra or a, a philosophy that exists within the company? Yes, yeah, so 37 Signals was actually founded all the way back in 1999 as a web design company. The part or the era, the phase of the company that I've been involved with and, and co-founded, as you will, is the software part, which came in 2003 forward. But in 1999, Jason founded the company together with two other partners. And one of those other partners had just watched a program about um, extraterrestrial life and the search for it. And in that program, the presenter's document 
mentioned that there was at the time in 1999 37 radio signals that were unidentified and could not be explained by natural phenomenon. So you just thought, do you know what? That's such a beautiful sentiment that there are 37 signals that we picked up from outer space that are signs of potential intelligent life. That makes a, a good catchy name and it just looks good in print and um, that's how it came to be. Yeah, great. And I was listening to your recent Reword podcast episode published by that brand, of course, where you were discussing the concept of underdogs. And this is the section of the interview that I want to get into kind of the traits that you believe should characterize a successful business and some of those principles that you uh, outline in your bestseller that we mentioned earlier, Rework. And the subject of your latest episode was, as I say, underdogs. Um, And I think it's an interesting way, I think, into discussing what you think makes a successful small or medium-sized business, potentially, rather than a large one. But you can talk to me whether that's correct. What is an underdog? Let's, Let's have that definition first, and then we can discuss what it means, uh, what it means in a broader sense moving forward. To me, an underdog is a company that's up against something better armed than themselves with more resources, more funding, more people, more legacy, perhaps more everything. It is the greater competition that you're up against and you've just started or you've been going for a while, but you're you're fighting with what it feels is a, um, a lesser arsenal of tools. Our plea to underdogs is actually, do you know what? If you look at it from a different vantage point, the underdogs have many of the advantages that large companies would wish they had. They are far more agile. They can make decisions very quickly. They can move very quickly. They can be personable with customers in a way you just can't do in a large corporation. I, for example, answer customer emails all the time. If you write to, I don't know, Salesforce, it is unlikely that you're going to get a reply from Mark Benioff. There are just some scales that just don't work and that underdogs can use to their advantage because they need every advantage that they can get. Because the reality is true that most companies, particularly in technology, are up against behemoths. And those behemoths have all the traditional business advantages that you could think of. So you have to find the untraditional business advantages as an underdog, which is also one of the reasons why this is the group of people that we focus on for our products, because we want to arm those underdogs with some tools that feel uniquely capable, feel uniquely productive, such that you can get um, a small group, perhaps like ourselves, who for many years, we were around 40 people to we're about 80 people, can go toe-to-toe with companies that are thousands of people. This is now happening all the time for us. Whereas in the beginning, we didn't have a lot of competition. Now we have tons of competition. And much of that competition is of companies that have been lavishly funded by venture capital to the tunes of hundreds of millions, who've hired thousands of employees, who squander also hundreds of millions on bad advertisement every year. And we have to find a response to that that does not involve raising hundreds of millions that does not involve getting into an arms race that is directly proportional. We have to fight asymmetrically against our competitors. And I think this is something most underdogs really can recognize. And I think they can also recognize the lack of recognition. Underdogs is usually not the key demographic that people pull out and celebrate until they've had their big breakthrough. And we are here to say that being an underdog is absolutely a great place to be. That small is not 
a stepping stone that you can choose as a company owner and say, you know what, 40 people, as we did in 2014, is enough. Let's size the rest of the company and cut down our product portfolio to fit with that constraint. Now we're around 80 people and we've again said, you know what, we don't really want to be a bigger company. Making those kinds of choices that can sound almost counter-capitalist, as in like, oh, you just want to grow as much as you can, as fast as you can, is is a choice that underdogs can make, but oftentimes they need a bit of encouragement and they need a, perhaps a bit of a community to realize there are other people who think the same way, that growth above all else is not the only driver of wanting to run a business. Now, the irony, of course, is that underdogs, and we consider ourselves underdogs to this day, um, following a different path are often better businesses because the kind of businesses that follow a growth above all else tend to be high stakes, high risk. They tend to take chances. They tend to have massive burn rates. And very often that just doesn't pan out and they flame out spectacularly. This is one of the reasons why I've had such a long running critique of the venture capital model in general, because venture capital is very good at creating a tiny number of high-flying companies of unicorns, but they sacrifice an enormous amount of entrepreneurial talent and potential businesses to get to that point. And my argument is, do you know what? That trade is often not worth it. We might get one large company, but we've killed 10,000 potentially viable good ones. Now, we should have a mix. There should certainly be some large companies, but it shouldn't be the only driving motivation, neither for entrepreneurs nor even for investors, that uh, we need a strong, resilient marketplace and economy. And that consists of a few large companies and then a very broad middle of mid-sized companies. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. You, It's almost so successful a mindset that you see some of these larger businesses trying to instill that approach within their vast corporations. I mean, I think on that episode that I referenced that I'll put in the episode description of this podcast, uh, you reference Jeff Bezos using the one day, you know, this is day one trope. You've got Steve Jobs talking about pirates versus the Navy. Talk to us about whether you see any other notable examples of maybe larger companies actually trying to instill this underdog mindset within their business. I think it's it's such a trope that almost anyone who works in a larger bureaucracy can recognize that there's a constant this talk of innovation. That is the key word that large corporations use. You never hear underdogs, generally speaking, talk of innovation. It's such a weasel word in many ways. It's such a we want to be hip and cool and fast word that doesn't really get to the problems with why you aren't hip and cool and fast? Well, that's because bureaucracies by their very nature are uh, rule bound. They are set up for repeated execution of existing protocols and processes. This is uh, something um, I've talked a lot about in um, uh, disruption theory, that the large companies are simply incapable of nurturing small um, counterintuitive ideas to fruition because they will very early on look at this and go, this is just a toy. It can't solve all our complicated, intricate needs for our very large companies. And you know what? That is often true in the beginning. 
And then, of course, disruption theory tells us that the beginning doesn't last that long, that eventually the disruptive technology will eat its way up in terms of capability and it'll become um, potent enough that it can unseat these bureaucracies. So I think some of it is simply just the laws of nature, that when you have large companies, it is exceptionally difficult to both be highly efficient at producing things according to the protocols. That's how you get these economies of scale and also be an incubator of new fresh ideas. I think when we see companies that are actually good at it, um, I think Apple for a long time have been the poster example of that. They're very often born in a very specific mold that was set by an iconic founder. I think perhaps the best example right now is Elon Musk and the absolute crazy antics he pulls at huge companies. The moves that Tesla, for example, recently made on pricing of their Model S and Model X cars over the past year have been just a textbook business case of how novel and rare it is to see a large corporation. Tesla sells something like 2 million cars a year now. They're a huge company, right? Act in this way that feels like it is a startup. And I think this is often how you see it. You see it in the contrast. People look at what Elon Musk is doing at Tesla, for example, and go like, this is absolutely bananas. If he was doing that at Tesla 15 years ago when they were selling 15,000 cars, no one would have batted an eye because these are complete normal standard tactics for how to operate uh, a startup. And I think the magic, if you will, of Elon Musk's leadership is that he's embraced this underdog ethos that, oh, it's it's him not just to be the biggest uh, car maker in the world, it's him against all other car makers, essentially. And by that definition, you will be an underdog until basically the end of time, more or less, right? And I think that's an incredibly powerful identity if you're able to assume it. Not a lot are. And usually the people who are able to assume it are founders. It is exceptionally rare that you can hire in professional, and I use that both uh, endearingly and despairingly, management who can run a business like that. It just doesn't happen. Uh, You bring in professional management, you bring in professional CEOs and so on. When you want things to be run efficiently, when you want uh, greater economies of scale. So Elon Musk is probably my uh, good example here as someone who's following in the ethos and even more extremely so, I would say, than the Steve Jobs and uh, the Jeff Bezos of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think Tesla is the best example. I mean, you see him trying that sort of stuff at at Twitter, now X, obviously. Um, But if if we move on then, because I think it's more than, um, well, we've discussed some of the facets of this underdog mindset, but one of them that we haven't quite touched on is this adversarial nature that it just sort of intrinsically imposes on the agent. And um, I think you talked about on the podcast that I've referenced, and I will include a link so people know what I'm talking about. But you discussed how four people, as four people, sorry, when you founded 37 Signals, you pitted yourself against VC-backed firms in this industry. And uh, you referenced your experience with Apple, too, I think, um, that maybe chased you off the uh, app, uh, the app store. But you can give me the detail on that as well. Tried. Uh, exactly that. So, yeah, wh- why don't you talk to me about that Apple episode and talk more broadly, I suppose, how that is another example of how 37 Signals and other companies should pursue this underdog mindset and how that adversarial kind of nature, I suppose, is so key. 
Sure. So in 2020, we'd been working for about two years and spent millions of dollars, and for us, a small underdog company, a large percentage of our capacity to develop a new email service to compete with Gmail, which in itself right there already sounds kind of crazy. But Hey.com was going to be, is our alternative to something like Gmail for a small niche of people who care enough about email that they would want to pay for a better product than Gmail. And we thought, you know what? This is a big fight we're asking on here. We're going up against um, one of the biggest behemoths in big tech, Google, with perhaps the most entrenched uh, product after search, Gmail, that they've been honing since 2004 and have a billion and a half users on. Those are sort of long odds for at least a direct fair fight, which is, of course, why we were never interested in direct fair fight. We launched a product that was for pay to make email better, $99 a year to get a far superior email experience that was based on new ideas, as great as Gmail is, and Gmail is a great product. It is also stuck in 2004. So we brought it up today in 2020, and as we launched it, we of course needed to be on the Apple App Store with our Hey app there, and we needed to be in the Google Play Store, and we made it for about two days before Apple showed up at our door with a ransom letter for 30% of our revenues. This is their tactic of juicing services revenues these days, it is to essentially take a 30% cut of the rest of the economy. And in the app store, that goes by forcing app makers to use their payment processing platform. And when you do that, Apple takes that horrendous 30% cut. Well, I think we were one of the first companies, we were certainly perhaps the only one who had spoken so loudly, who simply said no, when Apple showed up with their ransom letter. And at first they were very puzzled by this. They were like, no one ever says no to us. We're, we're freaking Apple, what are you doing here? And then they started with the threats, which was essentially, we will kick you out of the app store, we'll ban you from the app store unless you give us 30% of your revenues. And we just kept escalating and doubling down on that fight where most, Anyone else who had not lived and internalized that underdog fighter mentality would absolutely have backed down. Any professional manager taking a uh, analysis to the board would never in a billion years have gotten sign off on this epic Titanic battle we had with Apple because it was high stakes. If Apple had won and they were able to shut us down and we weren't willing to cave, we would have lost our investment all this time that they've got into it. You simply can't produce a mass market application like hey.com these days without having a presence in the Apple App Store or in the Google Play Store. You simply have to be on these mobile platforms, which is one of these problems. This is why I've been involved with the whole anti-monopoly battle, but that's a different story. Just this idea that you can't fight, that you don't have to lay down, that just because someone is bigger than you does not make them right and does not mean that you're out of options is a huge part of the underdog ethos. And that underdog ethos, I think, is perhaps best crystallized when there is conflict, when there is a fight. When we first got started with Basecamp, our target was Microsoft Project. Microsoft Project was the product that people brought up when we talked about project management. And it was often in terms of uh, burndown charts, and Gantt charts and all of these other things that the project, Microsoft project did at the time. And we went fiercely in opposition to that, coming out with an entirely different philosophy of what project management should be, that it should be about uh, communication and collaboration rather than stats and charts and burndowns and, and whatnot. And I think having uh, an enemy, if you will, 
to focus your attention is just an incredibly powerful tool. You got to be careful that it's not your only tool. I think businesses occasionally get so single tracked on just their competition that they forget to be themselves. And that doesn't result in compelling or interesting products or services. But if you use it sparingly as a salt or perhaps even a chili pepper, it can really fire you up when it matters. And I think occasionally it does matter. Occasionally there are these points where um, you have to to take a stand and you have to pick a fight. We took a stand, picked a fight, and perhaps... At a higher or, or, or longer odds than I'm typically all that comfortable with, um, there's a mythology around entrepreneurship that is just a bunch of uh, risk-addicted folks who just love to gamble everything on on Red uh, 24. But that's not actually true in my case. I found a lot of sort of entrepreneurs actually are not very um, risk-interested. They're quite risk-averse. They just see risk a different way. But this was one of the riskiest things that we've did. But thankfully, it also paid off because we had this incredible launch in 2020 that culminated with the fight with Apple. We signed up uh, 20 or 50 times as many customers as we had anticipated because we got such attention to our cause. And this was one of the things that got the ball rolling with a lot of um, antitrust legislation and so forth. But just the sense that, you know what, we're going to do this. We're going to stand for our principles. I think this is something else that customers recognize in underdog companies, that they are they actually believe something. And why do they believe something? Because they're typically run by people who believe something, who have, if not the whole influence, an outsized influence of what the company actually does. Again, when you're dealing with companies, especially large ones run by professional management, the singular opinions of that professional manager is typically a very small drop in the large ocean of what this company is going to stand for. And most of the time, what the company is going to stand for is whatever you think it should stand for, such that consumers or customers will respond favorably to it. I think you can see that in some of these recent cases that's come up with um, whatever, Budweiser, some of these other things where you're just finding companies that are just flailing around trying to find out what does the customers want us to say? Do you know what? That's, to me, already an odd situation to be in. Um, and I think it is difficult for a lot of customers to respond positively to that. They will respond to, hey, here's something who authentically believe what they say. They're not just saying it to make a sale this moment, this week, this month. They're saying it because this is actually what they believe for the long term. Huh, do you know what? That's interesting. That kind of dedication and conviction is increasingly rare in an economy that's dominated by professional managers who are just in charge of making whatever the next quarterly mo- uh, numbers. We went up in the Apple case against Apple in a long shot in a way that, you know what, if we were going to present that to a board, that was going to be, that was going to look bad. And the payoffs that are present in such a gamble, I think are intrinsic to that underdog identity. Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify for the listeners, I read up on this case beforehand, but uh, for them, just tell us how that issue was resolved. So obviously you weren't kicked off, off the apps or so what was the conclusion to that? So we made so much of a ruckus. We got so much media attention on our case that Apple actually ended up changing their app guidelines to make a specific carve out for our kind of business such that, oh, yeah, it's still 30 percent, but just not for these very loud individuals who are causing a lot of trouble, uh, both with customers, the media and legislators. So we got a bit of a carve out, which ended up sort of a standoff. We are in the App Store with both Basecamp and with Hey. Uh, The problem is in no way resolved, but I mean, 
mean, you also have to, as an underdog, both be um, exuberant and and unrealistic in your claims, but also recognize when you're up against a tidal wave. Like, we were not single-handedly gonna strong-arm Apple to drop the 30% charge. They make something like $15 billion uh, a year, over yeah. a billion dollars okay, a month and, just uh, on those 30% Just to round off our conversation cuts. about that, like, seven that's signals, not you within our uh, remit. Well, we, the best VC we could do is shine a lot of light on the problem, that with get legislators and, and, and media dangers, and consumers I suppose, aware and the risks associated with going to for that external day. funding. Um, and this is, of course, linked to profitability, right? So in an industry that's become almost synonymous with losing tons of money on the 37 signals website there's an impassioned defense of profitability so talk to us about why it's so crucial profitability is freedom that is the fundamental premise that we build our business on as long as we're profitable we do not have to ask other people for permission we get to run as long as we want Granted, shouldn't commit any felonies or do anything against the law, but as long as we're selling products and services to customers for more than it costs us to make it and we can cover all our fixed costs, we get to stay in business forever. That kind of freedom is actually surprisingly unique when it comes to business. As soon as you go public, for example, you no longer have anywhere near that freedom. You are now beholden to the quarterly numbers. And at the end of the day, eventually, you're also beholden to the gravity of economic Now, what's so interesting about this discussion about profitability is just how long the market can stay irrational. And that is essentially what happened um, with with our defensive profitability during the long bull run we've just had that ended um, about a year and a half ago in technology. Since um, the Great Recession started a, a bull run in technology, rates were super low, everyone invested into technology startups. We got these fantastical valuations associated with companies making no money at all, in many cases, literally losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, And that ran all the way up until about a year and a half ago when that whole bubble then burst. And the SaaS bubble, the unprofitable SaaS bubble, I should say, that is the domain that I'm in, has burst so effectively that uh, I think we finally injected some reality into the conversation. Did you know what? Eventually, someone somewhere has to make money. Like you can't just keep on having these astronomical losses for eternity. Now, the funny thing is that you can have it pretty close to eternity. You can have it for what seems like someone's entire career. There are tons of people in the investment community, VC community, and tech communities who've never known anything but a bull run, who've never known anything but up and to the right. Well, this is where I'm going to reveal my age here. Um, I was around for the original dot-com boom and bust. So I saw the original part of that, then saw the Great Recession, and now sort of the third um, incarnation of that bubble bursting. That's only three incidents over 20-plus years. So you can be forgiven uh, to, to explain why people fall into this trap of thinking that profitability doesn't matter, that growth is the only thing that matters because we get paid by selling to a greater fool. We don't actually get paid by making money on the business. Well, that's the thing we've been doing for the past 20 plus year. We've been making money on the business. And in software in particular, this is where it kind of offends me because software is, in many cases, a net zero margined product. So 
it costs a lot to build a solution, but then when you sell to each incremental customer, it should be very cheap. Well, it isn't in all cases. There are lots of software companies that are premised on spending everything they will make for a customer and 50 to 100% more just on sales and marketing, which always seemed like such a strange conception to me. There was an old um, um, comic on on that notion of, hey, we're a bank and, and we're getting a lot of customers by... Um, like giving you eight quarters back for every dollar you deposit, right? Like if you're willing to spend $2 to make $1, yeah, growth is entirely possible. And I think we've seen just a ton of examples of this. Um, companies spending lavishly on sales and marketing on a fundamental business that just couldn't support that. Now, there are the occasional outliers and that's what keeps the whole dream aligned. Occasionally, someone will win the lottery. That's true. So it's also true that by you buying a lottery ticket, you do have a chance of winning the Powerball or something else. What I think most people forgot to look at was what were the odds? What were the odds that this business could do well getting pushed to spend hundreds of millions of dollars in losses every year to eventually become the kind of company that would make it all back? It is exceptionally rare. You can basically count it on, if not uh, two hands, then two hands and two feet, the number of companies that, that have made it to, to that stage. So we push back against that to embrace that freedom, especially when we make the pitch to our entrepreneurs. You, entrepreneurs often have this illusion that they think they will get more freedom when they get a big check. Oh, if we raise all this money from VCs, we can do so much more of all the things that we wanted to do. Yeah, that's true in a narrow sense of you can hire more people, you can buy more ads, but it's absolutely not true in the sense of you being able to set the fundamental direction of the company. Once you've handed off a substantial ownership slice to investors, the investors own you. I mean, literally. That is the whole premise of investments, that they buy a piece of you and they get to tell you where to go. And it's even more insidious than that. They don't even have to tell you where to go. In most cases, once you've bought into this idea, you've also bought into the mythology that growth becomes more important than anything else. And all these other things you might want to do in your business is secondary or in most cases, 10th on the list after it goes growth, 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 growth from position one to position nine. And I found that a lot of entrepreneurs don't actually enjoy that. It is not a pleasant place to be, especially if you have to be there for three, five, seven, nine, ten years before you might, might get a liquidity event. And then sometimes you have these companies who get liquidity events and the founders essentially get bupkis because they've been sort of watered down. Their ownership stake is minuscule and the investors have liquidity preferences at the end of the day. That's just triple sad. You put in all this, you did a bunch of things you didn't really want to do. You worked and grind your ass off for 10 years and you're left with essentially a thank you note. Ugh. <laughs> and um, that description, I think, is a perfect segue then to talk about... Uh, well, finishing section basically on your investment in Danish startups that I read about on online. Two questions. Firstly, are there any businesses that you're invested in that you're particularly excited about that you, you want to highlight for the listeners? Um, you know, obviously they're, they're private companies. A lot of the people listening in might not be able to invest, but I'm interested to hear on the exciting businesses that you're working with. Yeah, so it's actually funny. I invested in five Danish startups on the premises that we just discussed, which was that um, we should try to make sure that this investment round that I'm part of is the last one that we want to get these businesses to to black numbers, get them into profitability so that they don't need to raise more money from investors. And in quite a few cases, that's panned out. In some of the cases, it hasn't panned out. There 
no surefire way to get success in business. So some losses are to be expected, but the general thesis that you can make a small investment to get someone over the hump, the initial hump, and then the wheels can start turning on their own, I think is valid. Now, whether the long run IRR is gonna be competitive, I'm not sure. This is partly an experiment on my part to put some money where my mouth is. With other businesses, I put my money where my mouth is in my own business, but now I've also done it on the investment side of it. So I believe that none of the companies are currently looking for money. There are a couple that might be looking for money in the future. Um, I'd be happy to to broadcast that when time comes. But um, the companies of that batch that I resonate the most with are the ones that are either already at the profitability scale or just before entering it. And a, a couple of them are. And I think that's one of the modifications on, on my, at times, a little radical approach to investorships as it is. I'm mostly quite negative about it when it comes to technology companies. But I also think that um, there's absolutely room for it. We need investors. We need someone with risk capital to put it forward. I just don't want it all to fall into the bucket of unicorn ship. We should have investors who are looking to put in a modest amount of money to help build a $20 million business, a $100 million business, not just looking for these billion dollar exits. And I think, unfortunately, the model is currently premised such that we take bets on such speculative ideas that have to go so far that we have to place a thousand bets to get one if you take it at the seed stage that's going to make it all the way or if you take it at the series a stage there's one out of ten that's going to pay for the fund right and i think that model absolutely has its place. I just want it complemented by a different model that goes, you know what, we're going to invest in a thousand startups and like 300 of them might become viable businesses that may not become unicorns, but may become some of those $20 million business or $100 million businesses that are sustainable for the long term and help build that middle part of the economy that we really need. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And it a unique approach in, in terms of, as far as I'm aware, to to kind of VC or external investment into smaller size startups. And half the reason I asked that question was to uh, lead into my final question, which is, and we ask this to everyone that comes on the podcast, we ask them for their next big idea. That's the name of the show. So perhaps, and this could be an area that one of these startups is exploring or completely separate to that, but is there an under underreported trend, company or product that you're particularly excited about at the moment? Give us that next big idea if you can. So I'll give you a teaser of that next big idea because we're actually working on that, what I believe to be the next big idea right now. And that is the recognition that SaaS, software as a service with recurring revenue, has had an absolutely glorious run. We build our business on that. There are a ton of business sets that have grown really large on the back of that. But I also think we're over SaaSed. The software ecosystem in general is oversassed. If you look at a lot of companies and add up the number of subscriptions that they are paying for, a lot of them will grumble and go, I cannot believe that it costs me this much every month to own nothing. And I think there's a switch coming here. We're trying to position ourselves to be ready for that, that we've been through other phases of software development and ways of selling and distributing software. They went out of favor for all sorts of reasons. We didn't have disks. We wanted to swap in and out and we could distribute things over the internet and so forth. And then we learned, you know what? Most people don't want to run their own servers. There are a lot of good reasons for why SaaS took off, but that's 20 years ago. A lot of business ideas are sort of sparked in a moment of a difficulty and a challenge of a time 
time. And then they just perpetuate themselves for eternity if nothing else kind of comes along to remind them, do you know what? It's not the same time anymore. It's not 2004 anymore. There are new ways of distributing software. There are new ways of selling software. And perhaps some of those ways of selling software will not include subscriptions. And I think that is a really fascinating area. I think it's something where a lot of SaaS companies are actually terribly vulnerable if a competitor enters the space that is not built on a recurring business model like SaaS is. And I think that's going to be one of the frontiers in the next decade. I'm really excited to be part of that. We're going to publish something on 37singles.com, I think probably next week, maybe to coincide with this podcast. So if you go on 37singles.com when this airs, I'm pretty sure we will have our big stake in the sand placed and otherwise it will be there soon. I think the way we're selling and distributing software is about to change. Yeah, wow, fantastic. And uh, if that is out by the time this episode publishes, we'll include a link in the episode description. And I think that's a fascinating insight to end on, I guess. That just leaves me to say thank you very much for, for your time, David. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 